Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I'm the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by writer, director, Mike Lee. Mike Lee is one of the greatest living filmmakers and for BFI, that's British Film Institute, are hosting a retrospective of his work right now. Celebrating his career, And at the center, they have a beautiful 4K restoration of his 1993 masterpiece, Naked. Naked for me and for a lot of my friends is Mike Lee's masterpiece. Arguably the greatest British film ever made. And a lot of the times people will ask me, actor friends and such, what films should I watch for knockout performances? And... Always, I say David Fielder's performance in Naked as Johnny is the bar. Absolutely fearless performance. And yeah, he's just untouchable. Naked is Mike's brilliant and controversial portrait of male angst and social dislocation. As I said, it's a landmark performance from David Fielder, who plays Johnny, the anti-hero of the film. Frantic and destructive, he's an outsider who tears through the lives of everyone like an emotional tornado. He's on the run from Manchester and he moves in without ask to his girlfriend's flat in East London. London listeners, if you want to go to the house, it's in Dalston, three or four minutes from the rear, if you want to make a pilgrimage. I got invited to a screening of Naked to do some homework before my interview with Mike and the film still retains all its power. It's so nihilistic and punk and doesn't let the audience off the hook. It still felt really unsafe and tender and dark, dark, dark. And I really can't stress how fucking radical this film was in Mike Lee's career and filmography. Nobody expected him to make a film like this. I don't think anyone had seen a film like this before. He was already making amazing films and everyone knew him as the, you know, air quotes, gritty British drama director, kitchen sink, realism. And he was great at all of that. And doing amazing work as i said but to come out of left field with this fucking radical ultra dark nocturnal odyssey with david fulis as this character kind of channeling marky smith from the fall ranting about the apocalypse with all these theories of the end of a world and the premillennium tension and battling his existence and just destroying everyone he meets is eviscerating them it was just incredible yeah and i think as mike says in our interview the film is dealing with so much that he defies anyone to give it a nice soundbite in one sentence but wow what a film Good morning. 
Morning. Thank you for taking time to talk. No, it's uh, it's a pleasure. So I was kindly invited to go see for 4K restoration of Naked at the BFI, and it lost none of its power. But it was strange because I remember this was one of the first films I saw when I was really became obsessed with cinema age 13 or 14. I remember renting it at the video store, but probably too young to watch it. And I watch it every few years, but watching on the big screen, I found it really powerful and affecting. Well, that's interesting because my... um, Leo's brother, his elder brother Toby, uh, came and saw it at the BFI the other week. Um, he said he he he'd got a diff- obviously got a different perspective on it. He saw different, you know, and probably that's what you're talking about too, is it? You, you know. Yeah. When I first watched it, I'd always say, "Oh, it's such a nihilistic film, and Johnny is such a nihilist." But when I was watching it this week, I, I was kind of realizing that. No, he's not a nihilist. He's angry, but also afraid. And he's obviously battling with these big um, theories of mortality and disappointment. And I don't know. I remember that expression, I was born, never asked. And it, I kind yeah. of, that's what I was kind of feeling from him this time. A lot more, I don't know if sympathy is the right word, but yeah, I got a completely different perspective on the character. I think that's right. Time. I mean, yeah. I mean, the thing is, there are two things really one is that it never occurred to me yeah you're familiar obviously with happy go lucky for sure yeah in some way johnny and poppy are kind of siblings on the reverse sides of a coin what they've both what they have in common is they're both idealists yes and the difference is that johnny is a frustrated idealist she you know is a positive idealist and deals with it and confronts stuff, you know, reflected as to how they would get on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, uh, the other thing is, of course, that with reference to what you were just uh, reporting as to your feelings about it, is, is that, you know, um, uh, of course, when it came out, it was accused particularly by uh, a militant feminist minority when it first came out, mm-hmm. of being misogynist and, and, you know, Johnny is a cynic, and he's not a cynic at all, as we've just said, he's an idealist. I defy anybody to talk about, to say what the film is about in a sentence, because it's about so many things on so many levels, I think. And the more I've kind of come back and revisited it, the more I realise the... the uh, multiplicity and complexity of the idea of what was the feelings and ideas in that order that um that we were that i was dealing with that we were putting into it you've said that seeds of ideas for films have sometimes stayed in your brain for many many years before they rise to the surface or you take that idea and you begin building from it And in the case of Naked, I read that in the 1950s in your school in Manchester, there was a teacher who would constantly remind you that the next full solar eclipse would be in 1999. And I was wondering, that's a really strange thing for a teacher to keep on reminding kids. And I was wondering, was that the spark that started Naked? Yeah. 
Well, I don't know that that's quite literally. Right. I don't think there's quite such a, a direct line. It was the headmaster at the primary school, uh, which we obviously we left to go to the secondary school in 1954. So we were like, um, must have been about eight or nine or ten when he said, when you are all 56, <laughs> in August 1999, there will be a total, the next total eclipse. And, of course, the last, the previous total eclipse, which my dad talked about and this guy talked about, had been in 1929 or something. Um, so that was a th- thing. But I, 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 I couldn't say that that was um, an idea which I carried through for all those decades as such. It is the case that in the early 90s, I had a notion, part, maybe it was something to do with that, the, um, the, 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 the impending eclipse, but more uh, an awareness that we, you know, the millennium was going to happen in eight years' mm-hmm. time. We made it in 1992, uh, Naked. Uh, and nobody was talking about it. Nobody was, you know. I mean, just to go to get to the essence of what you just said. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure you, you um, know that, on the whole, what happens with my films is that we embark on a blind journey, and discover what the film is. You know, on that journey of making mm-hmm. it, really, and we ultimately, even though we spend months preparing characters and relationships and all that, we make the film up on location. And Naked is famously a case in point where we couldn't decide how to end it until very late in the day, and it ends the way it does because I suddenly spotted it whilst driving to the down the road in the direction of the house. I suddenly got this image of him stumbling down the road and that fed back into deciding which what which motivation we should which route we should take as to ha- what he actually does at the end um so uh, the only films i've made where i sat on an idea for a long time were mm-hmm. particularly vera drake because i'm old enough to remember what it was like before the 1967 abortion act when people had unwanted pregnancies um i mean m- m- mostly and naked is no exception uh, it really i'd be hard put to say precisely what in any way what was starting point i mean one of the things was that david thewlis had been in um Life is Sweet, mm-hmm. I worked with a couple of times before, and his part, because of the dramatic narrative requirements, his part of uh, the uh, anorexic girl's boyfriend really only wound up as a brief, relatively brief appearance. So when I talked to him, and I was going to do another film, and I said, um, how do you feel about being? He said, well, how do I know that won't happen again? Right, and I said, "Look, whatever happens, whatever happens, I promise you, you'll get a substantial slice of the pie." And um, so that was a that gave that was a kind of conceptual starting point because then I sit down and sort of start to be, you know, creative and inventive and imaginative and work with the actors and stuff. David said that on one of your first meetings, you asked him to go through all the men he has met in his life and you gradually narrow down the list and then you, you you landed on a character from his past and you said maybe this is going to be the basis for the character i was wondering how do you know when you've 
found the character? Do you just have a gut? Do you have a gut instinct, or is it yeah, something I mean, yeah, more? Yeah, I mean, honestly, with all due respect, ask the same question of any novelist, painter, sculptor, poet, mu- music maker. That's what we artists do. You make it. You know, you have a thing. Ah, yeah. I'll go with this, or you just get a feeling, or you get an idea, or whatever it is. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's right. about making, making it up. It's what, as I say, it's what the creative process is. So, and of course, don't forget that I'm sitting down with him. I'm parallel to that. I'm also sitting down at the same time, like him in the morning, Leslie Sharp in the afternoon, Catherine Cartledge the following morning, whatever it is, d- working out other characters. By the way, incidentally, the process you've just outlined very accurately about asking an actor to make a long list of people, they, or make a list sometimes, yeah. sometimes of people they know is standard procedure. That's how all the characters in all my films come into existence, have come into existence. And uh, by the way, uh, for a long time, David on Naked was the record holder because he had over 100 people on his list. <laughs> However, um, that was completely blown out of the water by Sally Hawkins, who hit over 200 <laughs> when uh, Happy Go Something I really noticed seeing the film again was, obviously, David Fuller's performance is just incredible. It's one of the best performances I've ever seen. But so is Leslie Sharp. And, you know, she's kind of a straight guy to David Fulis in a way. And I was thinking if all the other cast weren't as good, they would just get blown off the screen by David Fulis because he's so incredible. His delivery, the physicality, he's funny, he's literate, he's frantic, destructive, unpredictable. And he's got that vitriolic mouth and but weirdly he's really magnetic but leslie sharp is as good as furious in the film i think in her own way and that scene in the bathroom between the two is just so beautiful and tender you can really see the history of david's character through her interactions with him well i mean you know the the fact is to, to take a a clear and objective view of it. I, I would be hard put to say that in terms of, you know, if we mark them, if they give them marks out of 10, the quality of everything they do, right. none of them, they all score 10. None of them score yes. less, less than David. They're all doing it. I mean, they're all doing it. I mean, you know, Gina McKee, who plays the, you know, the, 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 the young woman who picks up in the cafe. And goes the cafe back. girl, yeah, that's a yeah, beautiful you know, I mean, that, that's a completely... I mean, it's such a subtle and, you know, uh, grounded performance. And Peter White playing Brian, the security guy. Incredible. That's, that's you know, not, I mean, because you're talking about not just good acting and not just good character acting, but you're talking about, you know, also all the research is going on in there. I mean, all the knowledge and stuff. It's really... Um, you know, I mean, they all get 10 out of 10, really. And, of course, you don't make a film with one character. I mean, people are interacting with each other. And, of course, what we, who we haven't mentioned, uh, who deserves massive mention always, is Katrin Cartledge. Yes. Uh, who, of course, as you know, 
died about a decade later out of the blue at the age of 39. How was the rehearsal process and shoot for Peter's scene? Vesta, such an incredible verbal sparring match that they had between them. Well, I mean, we we happened to be to be doing all the development, our rehearsal space. Mm -hmm. Um, We always get some empty building to operate in. It happened to be what had been, I think, in a London Education Authority uh, office block in Marleybone in London. And um, we began by having created Brian, the security guard, um, of setting up improvisation in that building and uh, just sort of exploring it, really. And then later we went, I mean, I think what's interesting about that sequence when it came to constructing it and shooting it is that we actually got the building, it's actually in in the film, is in Charlotte Street, parallel to Tottenham Court Road. And um, I, we'd invented the fact that he was a security guard guarding a working office, a Mm -hmm. a working office block. And the production designer, Alison Chitty, who's something of a genius, and who mostly, who does operas mostly now, not film, she, came in one day she said I've had an idea she said what about if you instead of a, 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 um, a, a working office a, a block what if he was guarding an empty office but just guarding space and I said that's fantastic that is so relevant I mean just to digress for a moment what's important to understand we've been talking so far just about actors but of course the contribution of the cinematographer who's always been Dick Pope since life is sweet mm-hmm. And the production designer and the costume designer, and indeed the makeup designer, is massively important. And there's always a stage while I'm, during the period while I'm developing the stuff with the actors, when I, by an agreed date, sit down with the these guys and share what I think is evolving, what, where I think we're going, going mm-hmm. so that they can start to prepare the, the, the you know what they have to. It's I think it's dark. It's kind of nocturnal. Mm-hmm. It's this guy. This solo journey, etc. I said, I said, I think it's kind of monochromatic in some way, even though mm-hmm. we knew we were going to shoot a movie in color. And Dick um, decided to shoot some tests. He decided to go for what's called was in the days of celluloid, called the bleach bypass mm-hmm. process, where you miss out one of the things that happens in the uh, in the lab. And we looked at a couple of Terence Davis's first things, which had used that process. And he shot tests. And so we got that discipline on the go. And Alison Chitty, the designer, um, took on the, the decision to, made the decision to be very, very selective and monochromatic mm-hmm. about what's actually went, was in front of the camera. And you will look at, if you look carefully, her, her, her decision, to be very, very rigorous about um, not having reds and being very monochromatic in, in terms of what was in, actually in front of the camera, separate from how the camera, mm-hmm. how the, so the f- photography was being treated, results in the fact that if you look carefully in the office block, you will see a grey fire bell. <laughs> <laughs> um, That's amazing. Yeah, I did, re- did realise that it almost has a film noir look. There's just so much beautiful black and grey and charcoal textures throughout the whole thing from the close to the streets. Yes. I mean, you know, it's very interesting to make a, a, color, a film in colour, which which it has that 
and the monochromatic field. And of course, it meant because of how it was being, how Dick was treating it. Of course, the same applied in the exteriors as well. You know, and so when um, another performance we haven't mentioned is Claire Skinner, who um, brings a completely different tone to the end of the film when she shows up from Zimbabwe as Sandra. Yes. Flat it is, which I, it's one of my favorite moments is when the taxi pulls up and she gets out lugging all this stuff upstairs in, in her sort of safari type uh costume, you know. Um, and uh, then discovers all the shit that's going on in, in her flat. Yeah, I was uh, really excited to see her get, I, I knew what was going to happen, so I was really excited to see her get dropped into this mix. Yeah. And it's a great performance, that because it's she, she's great. She does. She's a great character actor, Claire Skinner, and she, she, um, she, um, it's a masterly piece of acting. Because the thing about Sandra, as we created her, is she can't finish a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> it's very clever, you know. I heard a story that the police were called during one of your rehearsals outside a church where you just instructed David Fulis and you and Bremer to meet. I think you just said to David, you're going to meet an actor for a rehearsal. Be here at this church. Yeah, it, it wasn't a night. It was actually in broad daylight outside the church in Marley, but it should have, I mean, the action in the film, indeed, took place at night. I think I've already decided that later. But, but um, no, they were improvising when, when they first met. met and uh, and um, Ewan Bremner, as Archie, was standing in the street in Marleybone in broad daylight, shouting, Maggie! Maggie! And somebody leaned out of an upstairs window and told him to shut up, and he told him to fuck off. And about three minutes later, a cop car screeched to a halt and the cops jumped out and that is what i do when all these things happen is i lurch i lurch behind a wall lurk sorry behind a wall keeping it out of sight but clocking what's happening and the magic words are from me and it only has to come from me come out of character so the cops pull right. up they jump out and they're ready to pounce on these guys and give them a hard time and i jump out and say come out of character whereupon the two these two blokes on the steps immediately changed their mode of behaviour. And I say to the cops, we're making a film. And, of course, they say, where's the camera? Well, the yeah. camera was about six weeks away. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, we managed to bail ourselves out. But I was going to say, about we were talking about the office block, and you were yes. asking me about the, 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 um, the evolution of that action and when we decided when we because what we do during the course of the shooting period always is to have is to stand down the crew and have rehearsal chunks of time so we can create and script and build the, the actual scenes in the location and I said look we have to rehearse this at night time we can't do that in the day so we went into nighttime mode for a stretch of time and in fact we shot it in nighttime mode as well and um so it it meant that the because my films people say well they're about people they are but they're also about place 
place plays a big part, and that is uh, that sequence is as good a case in point. You know, I mean, that office block, including its round window and everything, absolutely gave you know informs the, the spirit of the action. And at one point in the middle of the night, I went and t t sat down in a corner, having set up an improvisation and waited in the dark, and the lights went on through behind these. Uh, windows and the guys came in and then they came into the space beforehand and were silhouetted uh, with the lights in the other room, having not yet put the lights on in the and then that and oh, so wow. that gave me that image. I thought, oh fuck, this yeah, great, wow, you know. So I mean, you discover the movie, and I couldn't have sat in a room like this one and thought that up. I mean, you just can't. I mean, it is organic and it happens by being there, and that's really that is how. All, everything you see in all my films has come into existence. It's interesting you say it's shot at night because one of the things that it really captured for me, especially when Johnny's in Soho at night, is those type of strange conversations and interactions I remember having in, especially the 90s pre-mobile phone era where you would be waiting for a night bus and overhear a strange conversation yeah. going or an, arg or an argument. Yeah. Or even at parties when you get to three or four in the morning, the discussions often get heavier or maybe take quite a surreal or heavy tone. Yeah, and actually the thing about the thing about the um the scene when he meets Archie outside Lena's stores in Brewer Street, um uh, 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 is that we we obviously we rehearsed the actual action and dialogue very precisely elsewhere but then we planted it there and we actually shot it overnight and you know people somebody asked me the other day well surely people kept coming up and saying what are you doing and but of course no it being soho in the middle of the night no one took a blind bit of notice basically <laughs> i mean everyone was just getting on with it and so we had lots of real people walking past real cars the only thing that happened by way of anybody um Re reacting to the fact that we were shooting a film there is down the alleyway on, on that corner. There's a brothel. There are obviously lots of brothels in that area. Mm -hmm. And the girl sent down a message saying, can you please go away? You're distracting our clients. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really curious, why do you stay out of sight from the actors as they're rehearsing in public? I'm guessing, is it because you'll get something different, obviously, when there's no crew or director's eye on them, even to the point where you're hiding behind a wall or something. No, no, yeah, well, that's true. I mean, obviously, you don't, I don't want to stand right next to them. I mean, no, it depends. I mean, if, let's be clear. I mean, um, if we're rehearsing in a small house, which is lots of, or a small room, then I sit in the corner. I mean, it's not, you know, the important thing is not, it's not, what I, I'm doing. I mean, obviously, my job is to. I mean, what I certainly do when an improvisation is shut up. I, I mean, famously, it didn't happen very much in Naked, but for example, the the big sequence in Vera Drake when the cops come round to arrest to arrest her, yeah, or the long sequence at the end of Secrets and Lies when all the truth comes out. Those were achieved by having. Um, in the case of Viridrek, an 11-hour improvisation that went on continuously for 11 hours with them in character, in costume, uh, and not knowing, and nobody ever knows what they wouldn't know. So they didn't know that there were some guys playing cops and they didn't, she didn't know that the, the family didn't know she was an abortion, all that stuff, you know. Um, and my job is to, to answer your question, is to shut up, 
listen and learn and sit there thinking, yes, no, oh, I see, no, if that happens, but maybe that should happen. I mean, as a dramatist, as a you know storyteller, mm-hmm. that's my function. So it's partly about the organic development of the characters and their relationships and all that and the acting, but it's also me um, uh, seeing in an organic way raw material spin itself so that I then get notions about how to then take that and distill it or convert it or whatever into the narrative, dramatic, cinematic material. Am I right in thinking Vera Drake, there was, I think maybe the son at the dinner table was completely unaware of that she was conducting abortions? Um, Nobody. No, no, they were all unaware of it. Right. That's why the reactions were so incredible. Yeah, totally. when... They didn't know. I mean, the whole point was she'd, she'd and we'd, we'd, we'd been developing those characters and exploring the relationships for like three months. And only Imelda and I, in, but she, of course, what they didn't know is that parallel to those rehearsals that they were coming to, those sessions, there were other sessions with various actresses playing various women who had unwanted abort- unwanted pregnancies. Um, and what she didn't know is that one of them had gone wrong. And they all didn't know that some actors were playing doctors and nurses, apart from some that are playing cops. They didn't know that I'd spent several days with the guys playing cops with a retired detective superintendent from the Metropolitan Police who had been around at the time before the 1967 Abortion Act and knew all about that. You know, I mean, all of those things go on. Well, that is standard across all of these films. That's how it works, basically. But the important thing is the end, the, the end product. And the end product is when you kind of distill all this together and, um, you know, uh, arrive at um, what's on the screen. You're telling all the different actors only little bits of information that they need to know for their performance and you're keeping some of them in the dark and they're not even sure what the full film is but it all comes together and you've got to keep all the all these i guess pieces of a jigsaw in your brain and know it's all going to fit together and it's all going to gel it's what an artist does i mean whether you're painting the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome, or whether you're drawing car- daily cartoons for The Guardian, or w- whether you're carving, you know, um, sc- sculptures, whatever you're doing, it is about the interaction between you and the material and ideas and feelings and all of those things. And, you know, how many novelists have you heard saying, well, I didn't really know where it was going or what was going to happen, but I got a message back from what I'd written the previous day and suddenly I thought, you know, the character dictated what should... Absolutely, you know, yeah. things. But, so, you know, and, and, and you know, I, I don't... What doesn't happen, because it wouldn't make any sense and it's not what I've just been talking about, it's the, it's the opposite of what I've just said. I don't simply say, oh, well, that happened and therefore that's what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, in... Um, we talked... Just been talking about the... Uh, um, you referred to the son, Danny May, Danny Mays' character in uh, Vera Drake. Yeah, he just didn't want to know. He just fucked off. He was furious mm-hmm. about the whole thing. And that's there in the film, but you don't see him leave. You see him, we use that and this, explore that. And you see him, he slowly comes round. He's persuaded by his dad. And similarly in Secrets and Lies, Claire Rushbrook played the white daughter, who just, as soon as he, 
it was announced that the, 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 the young black woman was her si half was her half sister. She just in the improvisation, the ten hour improvisation, she just grabbed the boyfriend and left. They literally left, and it took us ages to find them because <laughs> we were rehearsing in the actual house, and um, and I had to we had to really negotiate the motivation that would make her come back into the house, which eventually was the boyfriend's say, if you should. And that, she said, well, if he said, if he said that, because up to now he's been something of a wimp, uh, she would do it. So she did. And that meant we could explore the rest of the action. And, you know, now, Naked is, there's a lot of all, I mean, Naked comes completely out of such explorations. I mean, you, um, we set up the premise of the girl from the cafe, because she's living in, I mean, one of the elements of Naked, as you know, is that the, the thing of being in an environment that's not yours. Mm -hmm. So he shows up at the beginning to the flat and he says, well, you know, what are all, uh, and there are all these um, souvenirs of Sandra's trips around the world. Yeah. Uh, the girl from the cafe. It, it, you know, obviously there are two gay guys who've gone to America and somehow she's house sitting. Well, she, the actress had no input into that flat. Alison Chitty and I, the designer, in, invented the characters and everything that's there was what we thought um, that would, they would have had. Um, but So I set up the premise of that, and the premise of this girl who's had a, a bit of a tortured experience of one kind or the other, without knowing what really was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And then we explored it through improvisation. And, and, and what was great is that contrary to what you expect, that he's going to go in and, you know, attack her sexually in some way or the other, or, you know, in fact, it, it, it takes a completely different kind of, um, of route because it's a function of their two characters. Um, and it's a very important scene for that reason. But you had to, one had to sort of explore it um, organically before then distilling it into something that makes some kind of coherent, dramatic, that has some kind of coherent, dramatic meaning. Um, th although it, it's probably one of the more enigmatic <laughs> elements mm -hmm. of the film. How was the mood on set? Did you feel you were making something special at the time? Yes. I mean, actually, it was it was good. The, 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 the mood's pretty good on my uh, shoots. It got a little bit of prep because we were shooting it into the winter mm -hmm. and it was getting dark and, uh, and we were under pressure to get it done for various reasons. I mean, it, it got quite, at one point it got a little bit heavy because what was going on was a bit heavy, but you know what? Uh, everyone was great and had a great sense of humor and all that. I mean, I think part of, I th the only thing that was a real fuck up on the film was that we had terrible caterers. <laughs> Food is so important. Very, I know. And there was a week's gap in the, so that we could construct the end of the uh, of the film, and I said to my producer, "Look, um, it, I mean, it was so bad that on the night shoots, members of the crew were paying in a Turkish restaurant, an Indian restaurant, on two different occasions. I mean, film crews don't pay for their own supper, but these guys were the food. Was, so I said, "Look, here, listen, it would be great if you could sack the caterer and get different ones, and they did. They did, and." Um, when people, when the guys came back from the break, weeks break, while we'd been rehearsing, and they, these great new caterers mm -hmm. were there, I mean, grown men wept. <laughs> <laughs> but 
but it was a great shoot. You know, it was it's good. Uh, you know, and also I'll tell you what's important about the shoot uh, uh, and the crew is you know some heavy duty sexual things going on. Mm-hmm. In the old days, when you had if you had anything sexual, an actress would be surrounded by men. Men on the crew, men mm-hmm. on the camera, men on the boom, on, on the, recording the sound, you know, everybody. We had woman focus puller, woman art director. Um, obviously, the script person, the script continuity person was a, was a woman. Uh, we had a woman boom swinger. And so it was a very much more, in that sense, it was quite an enlightened, sort of a more relaxing, less oppressive show atmospheres, really. And you couldn't have made that film with a macho, crew and we surprised by the response and critical acclaim i read something great that spielberg and scorsese love the film they do did they reach out to you directly did you get to hear their yeah. thoughts yeah 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 i mean I'm, i've met them both on a number of occasions and yeah they're, they're fans you know i mean um coppola actually thought that topsy-turvy was one of the best films ever wow that's great <laughs> So, I mean, you know, um, you know, no, no. Uh, it was co- really Scorsese and Coppola were, uh, I mean, Spielberg has been nice about it, but it was actually Coppola and um, Scorsese who were particularly um, enthusiastic about the film. How has the response been at the BFI screenings for this film? Great, great. No, I mean, you know, I mean, look, people... People get it and they dig it, and that's you know it's. You know. I mean, as to being surprised by the response, I mean the, the first big surprise was he went to Cannes, because up to that time, I never thought in a million years I'd make a film that went to Cannes. You know, because that's not Cannes was about something else. Some you know, just like the Baftas, I never thought I made all these very popular television films mm-hmm. in the nineteen seventies and early eighties and and. Uh, they were never ever considered for a split second for the BAFTAs, but then you know I've had more recent films that weren't considered for BAFTAs either. So there you go. And then we won at Cannes. We won at Cannes, which was great. You know. Strange question to end on: Arnold Schwarzenegger turned up at your screening for Naked. Is that true? Where was that? I think it was David Fulis who said that Arnold Schwarzenegger turned up to your red carpet at Cannes. Oh, yes, he did. No, no, that's right. I remember now. I'd forgotten. No, he did. But oh, I know what happened. Yeah, of course, I remember that. What actually happened was, I, I don't know why it slipped my mind, maybe because it's not that important, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> maybe I should take it more seriously. No, he did. We were on the red carpet. That's right. And he swanned in and uh, and got a big cheer. He was going to watch the film. And he went in and left through a side exit <laughs> and went off somewhere else. So it's not really true to say he came to see the film. He didn't. He was there, and he li- and, and he, we know he left because people saw him go. They went, to, they went into the into the building and left through a side door and went off to some other event. So maybe that's probably why I didn't remember. But now you've reminded me, I will never forget again because it's a good story and it's true. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk, Mike. Not at all. Thank you, man. Thank you, Steve. Great. See you again.
there we go. Me and Mike Lee, that last story was just spectacular. Thanks to my podcast engineer, Ewan Henselwood, Joshua Eustace, aka Telephone Tel Aviv, for my beautiful music. And this isn't a sponsored advert, but I want to shout it out because I love what they're doing. The BFI are releasing Naked on the 29th of November, 4K Blu-ray restoration. And they're releasing Mike Lee's debut Bleak Moments from 1971. All beautifully repackaged. The transfers have been overseen by Dick Pope and Mike Lee himself. And you know I love physical media, so... Go purchase these wonderful films. Wow, we had Mike Lee on the podcast. That's amazing. Deeper into movies. Thanks for listening. See you next time.